0: Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Fine Pears Taplines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. The leaves are falling, the smell of wood smoke is in the air, football is on TV. These are the harbingers of fall tapwines, listener. Today we're here to discuss one more signal of the season, pumpkin beer. It's a controversial varietal, that's for sure, and some people get irrationally angry about it showing up in their supermarkets and liquor stores before they believe it ought to. But the fact of the matter is, pumpkin beer is one of the most popular seasonal offerings in craft brewing's skew-morphic repertoire year in and year out. People love it. Not me, personally, but people... If you didn't know any better, you might assume that the whole pumpkin beer thing was just an offshoot of Starbucks pumpkin spice latte phenomena, but it most certainly is not. The PSL was only introduced to the American drinking public in 2003. Pumpkin beers, on the other hand, are typically dated to 1983 or thereabouts, shortly after one Bill Owens opened Buffalo Bill's Brewery in Hayward, California. It was there that Owens, a former award-winning photojournalist and future founder of the American Distilling Institute, pioneered that autumnal brew on a lark, creating one of craft brewing's most enduring calendrical calling cards in the process. Today on Taplines, we're joined by Bill himself for a wide-ranging foray into craft brewing history and his considerable contributions to it, pumpkin-based and otherwise. He's one of the most polymathic guests we've ever had on Taplines so you'd best believe we covered a lot of ground, listener. I hope you're ready to roll. It's Bill Owens, it's Buffalo Bill's Brewery, it's the birth of pumpkin beer, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Taplines. Tap Lines. today is graced with the presence of maybe its most polymathic guest of all time, or at least so <laughs> far. I'm talking, of course, about Mr. Bill Owens, Phil, welcome so much to Taplines. No problem.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Phil, where are you joining us from today? I'm from Hayward, California. I'm sitting in my house that uh, caught on fire. The fan in the bathroom caught on fire. Oh, geez. So today, today I'm moving from this house. I have my assistant in a front house, and I'm moving her to another house. And so I'm in the process of moving today. I've been camping out on the back porch with a Coleman stove and an extension to the TV And, of course, my modem working. (laughs) Bill Owens, what can't you do? You're a photojournalist. You're a brewer.
0: You're a distiller. You're a survivalist. I can't sing. I'm so jealous of people who make millions of dollars singing a song. How can that be? Why didn't God bless me? Well, as far as I'm concerned, you have the dulcet tones required to take us down memory lane here on tap lines today. We thank you so much for joining uh tap lines listeners. For those of you who are not familiar with Bill Owens and his polymathic career. Um, like I said, just a moment ago, uh, Bill has achieved excellence in so many disciplines. Bill, I'm going to, I'm going to flatter you for a second. So you're going to have to try not to blush. Uh, he's, You've achieved so many things in so many different disciplines, photojournalism, photography, editing uh, organizing, of course brewing, which is what we're here to discuss today. Um, and you know you've you've had just this incredible uh, incredible life that you know right now apparently includes dodging small, fires and uh camping out in your backyard man what this is thank you so much for joining us at what must be a pretty chaotic
1: point uh of transition for you no nothing i'm, I'm turning 85 soon on monday so i when i meet other people my age they're usually uh, can i say the f word you please do you're more than in Korea. <laughs> most people my age are fucked
0: <laughs> let's get into the meat of the matter bill uh, we're going to scroll the tap lines, time machine back to the early eighties. Um, we're going to, th- let's say, let's go, you know, right to around uh, 1980 or so. Yeah, I, I want to I go back further. Okay. Well, take control, yeah. my man. Uh, okay, here we you go. turn the time machine wherever I'm, you want to uh, take
1: us. I'm 15 years old <laughs> and my mom and dad sent me to Bible school. Okay. Where I learned uh, that Jesus could turn water into wine. Okay. And so I said, if Jesus can do it, I can do it. And so I went and got the neighborhood kid, Keith and I, uh, got the ladder, got up on the arbor, picked all the grapes, put them in a wheelbarrow, and took them down to the barn. And in the barn, my dad had these wash trays uh, under a pile of lumber. So I took the lumber off. We dumped the grapes in. I get a two-by-four, squash them all up. Mm -hmm. Then we get the shovel and dig a hole in the backyard and fish out all the stems and bury the stems because we don't want any proof we've been doing anything. Got to get rid of the evidence. We covered all, yeah, I don't want my dad to catch me. Cover it all back <laughs> up and wait, waited wait, a couple of months. And uh, By the way, I've written this up. I'm doing my memoirs right now called Chicken Heads. Uh, I'm 50,000 words into it, so okay. I told the story a few times. So a couple months later, I went and got Keith. We took the lumber off the wash trays, looked down underneath, and it's, there's a green mold going on it, but that didn't bother me. I pushed it back with a mason jar, and I said to Keith, here, you drink it first. <laughs> Neither one of us could put it to our nose. But <laughs> so now we have a problem. We have to get rid of the evidence. So I knew what to do. Of course, I'm a farm boy. We figure these problems out. Uh, I drained the tubs into a couple of buckets and carried the buckets out to the b- pasture, and poured out the wine, whatever it was. I think it probably well, I'll tell vinegar. you vinegar. We'll <laughs> um, we uh, then dragged the wash trays outside to where there's a gar- garden hose and wash them out. And I started looking inside where the wine was, and it's all bright and shiny. So apparently the pH of the wine ate the zinc. So we basically, we made rat poison. Yeah, I was going to say, he made, he made
0: something like, like turpentine
1: almost. We'll my goodness. <laughs> if you drink anything with zinc in it, it would kill you. <laughs> oh, man. We put the trays back, covered it back up with lumber. And a couple of months go by And at supper. My dad said, Billy, there's these rings of dead grass out in the pasture. <laughs> 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 What's going on? I said, Flying saucers must have landed. <laughs> <laughs> so this was your first. This was your
0: first encounter with fermenting. Uh, yeah. It sounds like at this young age. This would have been what 19, uh, 70 years ago. You're turning uh, eighty five next week. Nineteen fifty
1: three. Yeah, fifty something like that. Yeah. Uh, then uh, I, I I got into college. I, my SAT was I think six forty. Okay. They don't accept. Uh, 640s anymore. Uh, but I, got, I was able to get into Chico State College because I was a farm boy and they had a provisionary status for farm kids mm-hmm. to let you come to college. And they took me aside and showed me my IQ. I was 101. Normal. Well, I was just happy to be in college. You know, to get off the farm <laughs> and work and get away from home and etc. Uh, once I was in college and we soon learned that we could go to the grocery store and buy these cans of malt syrup, and then you sure. just pour the syrup into a five-gallon bucket. And I think on the instructions on the syrup on the side, it, it usually would say uh, for canning, uh, do not ferment. Wink, so, wink,
0: nudge, nudge. Yeah. yeah so uh, <laughs> we add
1: some yeast to it and ferment it, and then of course you get about three gallons. This five-gallon bucket. You got about three gallons when you're done. And of course we had no. We put it in the fridge. Take the shelves out. Put in the fridge and we could drink it for maybe two to three days till we had to go buy beer and then or do another fermentation. Yeah. But I got through college like that, uh, drinking Brown Derby beer and whatever it was. Oh, Brown Derby, Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. uh, Then uh, after college, uh, I was married and John and I went in the Peace Corps. Uh, When we came back, uh, I got my first job at uh, Livermore Independent as a uh, photographer. So every day I would photograph six to ten assignments. So I just recently figured out in 14 years I did uh, 23,000 photo assignments where I went somewhere and photographed somebody or something, and it was published in the newspaper. So I really developed an eye by photographing every single day, developing the skills. And as you know, repetition uh, and any skill from basketball on is super important. Sure. Sure. Uh, and I started then home brewing again, off and on. So you're doing photo journalism work, but
0: you're also starting, or you continue home brewing. Yeah. Uh, after this yeah. is after college at this point. Yep.
1: Yep. And okay. Finally, in the newspaper, and this happens to all of us at the peak of your career, uh, you get laid off or fired. Sometimes both, especially in the media business. <laughs> right. And so I was laid off from the newspaper, myself and a couple writers, and. Uh, I continued to homebrew because I didn't have money uh, to uh, buy beer, mm. uh, uh, but then there was a couple of homebrew clubs, and I, I went to these homebrew club meetings a couple of times, and these guys were idiots. I just could not stand. <laughs> they critiquing each other. They, they badmouth each other, and I wouldn't go back to a homebrewing club. No way. Yeah, okay. But today, I think there's like 10,000 of them across America. It's big industry. Many, so I'm, yeah. is still being published for Homebrewers. brewers. sure and The is. last time I went to Homebrewers, the thing was about five years ago in Denver, and I walk in a room, Jesus Christ, every single person had a beard and tattoos and looked like something <laughs> from another generation, and I just walked out of the room. I did not want to be around uh, these people that have tattoos on their neck. Usually the my generation you had a tattoo on your neck you were in prison maybe that's where you got it yeah uh. yes that's where you got it <laughs> um, I I was home brewing laid off from my job home brewing my wife left so I don't have very much money but I got interested in and there been a couple of people talk about all grain brewing and I wanted to learn how to uh, switch from syrup which is expensive 4 or 5 dollars uh to buying grain, which is like a dollar a bag, you know, for mm-hmm. five 10 pounds. Grain is 70 cents a pound, I think. I usually needed uh, 10 pounds. No, I, I I think my mash was 30 pounds. Uh, there, the, at that time, there was a couple of crazies out there. Uh, there was Cartwright Brewing up in Portland, Oregon, and I had heard uh, from uh, Tom, who was uh, later became a, a craft brewer, uh, that they would mash in... And then they would get down on their knees and pray to Jesus that the starch conversion would occur. (laughs) So then there was a couple of other people who uh, had – I got a hold of Dave Lyme's book, uh, The Big Book of Brewing. And he had little bar graphs in there, alpha amylase and starch conversion of starches to sugar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the most important thing to all of this and the whole renaissance – was Dr. Michael Lewis at uh, Davis. And sure. Lewis would give these Saturday seminars, and the whole room would be full of homebrewers like myself. And at the end of the, the afternoon, Lewis would go to the blackboard and write out mathematical formula, clear across the blackboard. You know, mm-hmm. you remember, I graduated from college in auto. I'm not too good at – matter of fact, I did fail the test to be a Navy pilot and go to Vietnam and kill women and children in 1963. Oh, God. John McLean. Think of that luck, to fail the test to be a pilot and not go off to war. You know? You'll take now it. Now, Vietnam, now, Hanoi is the most wonderful place to visit for food in the world. Isn't, is that ironic? I could have been bombing it as a 23-year-old. Yeah. 20 so at the end of Michael Lewis's lecture, I finally raised my hand, I said, What temperature does starch conversion occur? Where do you have to be at? And he said, The number is 152. So I knew I had to get to 152 on temperature to do starch conversion. And now I believe I've heard Dr. Lewis has pushed that temperature up to 157. So barley will really stand that hard, uh, hot water. And the enzyme stimulates the enzymes, and starch conversion is done. Almost immediately, within 10 minutes, starch conversion's complete. In those days, people were trying to do the decoction, the German method of heating to 120, heating to 130, 140, 150, burning all the enzymes off at 170, some five-hour mashes and, and crazy stuff like that that I didn't, I had no ability to heat
0: a vessel what were you doing this on? What was your equipment like? At the and and by the way, Bill, what year roughly are we in at this point? Like where whereabouts are we? I don't know, but because my house is torn up. I wrote a little book called uh, Draft Beer in, uh, in Ten, 10 days. days. Yeah, that's and right. That, that was how I taught myself to do it. You published that in 1982. I want to say is that ring, Does that ring? sound yeah. about
1: right. Yeah, I think I opened Buffalo Bills in eighty three. Eighty three is Buffalo Bills, in which 18, we're getting 1980 to. Probably even earlier. Okay. But I'd gone up to River City Brewing Company in Sacramento, and the guy had built a mash tun where, uh, from a t- dairy tank, and the to the bottom opened up, and I was able to look in there and see what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. And he'd taken a copper pipe and a hacksaw and cut slots in it to create a false bottom uh-huh. because there's no way in those days. There's no internet. It's too expensive to call. You could never figure out where to find a V-wire screen to put in the bottom of your mash tun. So I knew with that that copper pipe was slotted that I could just take a hacksaw and do the same. And so I go to the uh, Ace Hardware and bought a camping cooler because they're food grade. And I could take copper pipe then and cut it out and put it in the bottom of the mash tun, make all the slots in there, uh, make the little tiny valve on the outside uh, so I could turn it on and turn it off. And so for hot water, I took an old water heater. Uh, I had to actually, I think I had to haul it someplace and get the cut in half. And what I found was a Budweiser keg would fit inside the water heater. Put <laughs> on the flame directly to the bottom of the keg because sure. actually no, there was no camping stoves at that time but propane. It was all what, like kerosene? Uh butane I maybe. Yeah. I don't know what they did in camping because I didn't have the money to go camping. I don't have <laughs> money to go to clothes. <laughs> all right, hang on. We let's take a pause here real quick,
0: Bill, because you're giving us an amazing amount of information. I love it. We're getting deep into the weeds with you. I want to zoom out a little bit here. You have already gone at this stage, we're in the we've we've kind of like scrubbed up to the early 80s. You've already had a career. You you had worked as a photojournalist. You got laid off. You get back into home brewing, sort of out of necessity, but also clearly you're interested in it. I mean, you got you yes. obviously got very I into there. it. I yeah, mean, I mean, you want to there. sure, sure. And this is happening at a time when uh, the early seventies and then through the 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 early eighties. This is a very fecund moment in. Northern California for what we now know is craft brewing. I mean, you guys didn't call it craft yeah. beer back then, but micro brew maybe, or just brewing. Maybe you didn't even call it anything, but we've had other guests on the, on the show who have talked about, you know, we had Ken Grossman on, who's the uh, founder of Sierra Nevada, who's over in Chico, oh. who would talk about the, all the, the DIY stuff uh, that, that folks like he, and, and it sounds like like you were doing just to build out, your, your your setups, your equipment. No one was making oh, brewing true. equipment for back then, was, you, in, yeah. unless the Germans were outfitting a new Anheuser-Busch facility or whatever. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay
1: let, let me push on now. Because Please do. After, so after I'd taken that class and I'm starting to homebrew with grain, I heard that California law was going to change and there'd be a new license of 72. And this new license said, You can sell beer regardless of the source. Mm. I could build a brewery. And so I drove up to – Davis is not far from Sacramento. I drove up to Sacramento to meet the college professor who had changed the law. And he told me uh, he was having some kettles manufactured by a guy named Fred Zaff in San Francisco. And he was going to build a brewery. And California law was going to change January 1st. So this is in the fall. And I said, "Well, I want to build a brewery too. How How do? I don't know how to get any money together. I don't come from money. Uh, I come from a farm. We know how to work, is all." <laughs> uh, and uh, so I went to a guy who did my taxes. And I said, "How do you get money in our society? I I don't know how to do that." And he opened up the desk drawer and he took out a limited partnership agreement and he gave it to me and said, "White out almond farm and put in brewery." <laughs> so I <minded> it out. <laughs> took it to the xerox machine copied yeah. it yeah and then went out selling shares uh you didn't have to register anything it started selling shares at three thousand dollars each and i raised ninety two thousand dollars that's not a little bit of money in that in well, that I, age it took a year to raise that money you know who were who, friends and family for the most part local business owners uh, where's it coming from i was a journalist on the newspaper i knew everybody in town I'd met the mayor over and over again. You knew the fire chief. You knew all the school teachers. You knew everybody. Yeah. Plus, yeah. I knew many other businesses because I'd go to those businesses to photograph them for ads for the newspaper. So, uh, with uh, when I got to, I think the partnership. When you get to fifty thousand, you can start building. Mm-hmm. So it took me nine months to. Uh, find a building originally i tried to do walnut creek and couldn't get find a building i ended up in livermore because the rent was a dollar a square foot and the building was two thousand dollars a month so i was pretty sure in my mind i could do two thousand dollars a month selling beer mm-hmm. so now i had to go to bone yards, which are basically junkyards for stainless steel uh, tanks and dairy tanks and uh, uh industrial equipment often Industrial tanks would be something from pharmaceuticals that weigh 4,000 pounds, and they're polished to to the moon, and I don't need that. I just need basic tanks. I was able to find a, a vessel where I could buy some burners, put it underneath the tank, and put a skirt around the tank, and I could do direct fire to the kettle. I found another tank to do a mash tun and drilled a hole. I had a hole cut in the bottom of the door. And then in the back room, I had two fermentation tanks that were on, uh, one didn't have legs, but I was able to raise, raise one up so I could pump into the upper one from it and then drain to the lo- lower one for loggering. Are you doing all this work yourself at this point? Do you have help? No. Well, yeah, you have a guy build the building out. I don't know how to do plumbing, but I, I could yeah, solder. Yeah. yeah I built it yeah. out myself, but you don't build up putting in the water system and that kind of stuff. Uh, I did have everything hard piped, uh, for a while, but uh, mold grew in it. I couldn't clean it. I couldn't get anything to 132 gotcha. degrees to, to do sanitation. Uh, so I had to cut those pipes off and use hoses. Mm-hmm. So I came out the door. I opened Buffalo Bills uh, in that fall. Oh, I hired a guy to come and dress in Civil War clothes and fire a cannon. That was fun. <laughs> Wait, What? <laughs> Yeah, Why? You because you call the police department and tell them you're going to shoot a cannon. They're going to say <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, hang on. I have two
0: questions. First of all, why is there a civil war reenactor in Northern California? California was not even involved in the Civil War. And second of all, why did you hire this guy to shoot off cannon uh, at well, Mills?
1: One, my recipe is stolen from George Washington, of course. Sure, right? sure, I, sure, sure. We'll get to that one. Get to the pumpkin ale later. Okay. And so okay. I knew not, not uh, the, that the next door was a print shop, and across the street was a Lucky supermarket. And so after we fired the cannon, uh, the, the, the police showed up, of course, and uh, they didn't cite me, but <laughs> it was an exciting time. Okay. This is 83. You opened Buffalo Bills. I could make rent every month, and I had well, one employee, a bartender, and there's was uh, two of us for a while, and then I was able to grow to three of us and uh, four of us, and uh, uh, I brewed every Monday, once a week. And I did, and of course I went to visit Ken Grossman several times sure. to to spy on him basically. And I did buy tanks <laughs> uh, to try to figure out the process. There's no books yeah. on the on the process for uh, craft distilling. And of course I eventually write a couple of books on what the process, how to how to do the process. Um, there's no, no the, the main thing is when you go to a big distillery or brewery, and I'm in the distilling business now. You cannot figure it out when you walk into a a gigantic factory like Budweiser you can't figure out what they're doing there they right. got 10 kettles going at once and they're all sky high yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I used to argue with people that listen when you're bringing this wash of wort up to a boil and after five ten minutes I would turn it off and my brewing partner would get mad at me he says Bill it says to boil for an hour I said listen it's a clear fluid <laughs> why do why am I boiling a clear fluid for an hour well, there's no books to explain to you what has to happen during that hour. Yeah, That's a hot break and some true floculate out. And you need to reduce the, some complex chemical reaction happens. How big was the setup at this point? Um, How much capacity? Uh, ten gallons. Okay, so batches were uh, two carboys. I had one carboy that was five and one that was six, and I liked it like that because I would really end up with ten gallons. A finished fluid because when you have a five mm-hmm. gallon, you get shrinkage. You know, it evaporates and cools down, and you, you can never get a full five gallons out of a five gallon carboy. Sure. So the eventually, like Playboy magazine came by and photographed me. Uh, some other people uh, wrote me up in magazines and newspapers, and uh, away I, I just did the best I could. I couldn't grow uh, like other people had done because uh, the print shop next door wouldn't move. So I'm stuck in that space, and I couldn't get into bottling. And the other guys who got into bottling took off. Yeah, and, that was where it was at.
0: Yeah, sure, sure, package. yeah.
1: And So the other uh, – when I opened with this Chronicle cover, covered it, uh, the craft the, – you can call it craft – micro-brewing, there was three of us that opened at the same time. Uh, one was done by uh, Bert Grant called Grant's Brewing up in Yakima, and Bert was a chemist and his wife was a chemist. And they uh, opened up a small brewery and then added the tap room. And the, uh, the other one was Mendocino Brewing Company up in Mendocino. And they had a small brewery. And when the laws changed, they also opened up a tap room. But I was the only really true brupa because I had the long draft. I'd bought Grundig tanks, which changed the whole uh, craft brewing. would not have happened if it wasn't for those English cellar tanks. That you could buy for a thousand bucks, of three-legged tanks, and I was able from uh, North Coast Brewing, uh, who does great beers. Uh, matter of fact, he's one of the few that has a mash filter too. By the way, that's another story. Uh, I bought th- two tanks from him, and so I had had three of them actually. I had 62 feet of long draw, and i put in pipe uh, from the back. At first, I just blew cold air down there. And the beer foamed. I could not pour beer. I had to go spend about 2000 bucks on a long uh, glycol system. And now I can pour 3,000 glasses without cleaning anything. So that changed everything. I didn't need an employee taking care of the kegs all day. Right. And being able to call at 10 o'clock at night from your woman bartender who couldn't change a keg. A keg weighs close to 100 pounds. You got to roll it. Uh, the handles are tough. And whatever I shouldn't say, his sexes couldn't do it. It's just hard work for, for anyone. Young yeah, yeah. Time, 110 pounds. Sure, not sure. Rolling kegs around in their spare time, and plus you got to roll it behind a bar. It's not easy to handle beer kegs because they're odd, oddly shaped. Yeah,
0: very awkward shape.
1: Yeah. So I did that for uh, 14 years uh, before I finally sold Buffalo Bills. It, it recently reopened. Uh, the owner of the, the next owner had it for another. Uh, 15 years. So it's been 30 years for Buffalo Bills. I'm collected in the Smithsonian. Yeah, you have a tap handle the in the Smithsonian, Smithsonian right? And stuff. Yeah. My photography is also there. So I'm sitting uh, in the, uh, bought an antique store across the street from Buffalo Bills. And I was in the antique business, but I, I soon hated all those people. They're all idiots again. <laughs> people would drive, drive for two hours. People would get in the car and come to my antique store after driving from Sacramento two hours to buy uh, a greenish depression glass. They wanted little tiny glasses and saucers from the great depression for $6 or $16. And I finally, I should have sold it. I just closed the antique store. I did not want to deal uh, with those people or other dealers. Uh, There was no money in it. I did have, over the years, I do I cannot drive past a garage sale to, to this day. I always find something that I don't need. Yeah. I, I have a lot of swag. I'm an expert on swag <laughs> uh, and collecting. I don't know. My house is full of it. Here, I just got back from Denali. You got a, what is that, a coaster? Oh, yeah. Truly stout. Yeah, a, a, a brewery distillery. Cool. Uh, he's, he's fabulous. I just went to Alaska to visit some distilleries. We just put together the most difficult whiskey trail in the world, Alaska. 3,000 miles
0: for 12 distilleries. Wow. And this is with the American Distilling Institute, which you founded.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. We did a map. I don't have it in front of me right now, but we're putting it. The website to be launched very soon, and we'll launch this trip. So I sort of know uh, the f- first person to finish it will probably be a German hitchhiker. <laughs> Somebody will go up there and ride A your mountaineer bike, or something. Yeah, yeah. A whole, <laughs> whole 3,000 miles because young people do like I did when I was a kid. When I flunked out of college – I uh, my roommate said, let's go to Europe. I said, yes, let's go to Europe. I can study French. If I can't learn English, I can learn French, right? Well, I lasted three days at the Allianz Francais in Paris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I ended up hitchhiking around the world, came back and went back to college and got my degree in, uh, to be a high school uh, shop teacher. So I'm pretty good with That's what you went to and, college for? Yeah, the industrial arts to be. They don't teach it anymore. Kids go to high school. and They okay. don't learn home economics or woodworking, metalworking, sure, industrial drafting, uh, printing. Yeah, I, didn't I learn a lot any of, of that. Printing. any of those careers, I could have gone into. I'm sure I would have been successful. But uh, but this explains some of
0: your ability soldering and putting together these DIY systems when you were building out Buffalo Bills. I mean, you had at least some expertise in it at that point. Yes, yes. You were exactly.
1: totally flying blind. Yeah, yeah. You know, only 2% of us in America are raised on a farm. Is that so right? So if you're raised on a farm, you know you know that horses are pretty stupid. If you stand close to a horse, it eventually will step on your foot. Okay. <laughs> I don't care. I have no love for horses. I've been drugged off the, by trees <laughs> and bucked and kicked. and uh, Get raised on a farm, you have a different uh, I'm pretty good at ch- killing chickens too. My novel's called Chicken Heads. And Mem- I, yeah, Chicken Heads, the memoir, I'm, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm really good at swinging that chicken up and with my left hand, chopping his head off. We used to do 20 or 30 at a time, but that's in the memoirs. That's down the line. I knew you had a lot of skills. I didn't even know about that one before we got you
0: onto the podcast. <laughs> Let's shift. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about so we, we know how Buffalo Bills comes to be. You've built this place out. You, had, you already had a ton of experience homebrewing at the time. Yeah. Buffalo Bills opens in 1983. Um, what's the reception to Buffalo Bills Brewery when you first open it? Or, or do people understand um, what you're trying to do there? You have a lot of customers. Tell me a little bit about the
1: scene. Y- yeah, you try to. I had, the um, I think, a seven-minute tour because all I did was open up the door, show them the kettle, show them the mash done, talk about that for two minutes, go in the back and show them the fermentation tanks. And that was mm-hmm. the tour. Um, so I gave a lot of tours. Uh, people uh, were interested in the flavors, of course. Uh, I could only, only knew how to make three beers, uh, lager, amber, and dark Mm-hmm. The vocabulary today is over 200 styles out there. Mm-hmm. And later on, you know, you begin to develop real styles and following some basic recipe. And what really changed everything was uh, using crystal malt, uh, chocolate malt, and Black patent, where I could really make some interesting beers. And, of course, to this day, I love barley wines. If you ferment them outright and get rid of that residual sugar, mm-hmm. uh, I like the big 10% alcohol beers. Those are the ones that are delicious because you don't have to drink two of them. One's fine. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Were you brewing anything like that at the time? You were, what, what were your ABVs coming out? Oh, no, I, I did a dark. I think the best I could get was about 8% fermentation. I just didn't just have any temperature control Yeah. and um, did not know what I was doing at all. Uh, and there was again, there was no books, no classes you could take uh, or hands-on. So you just... And other people are starting to come in the industry. And, of course, Ken Grossman set the banner way high. Yeah. And other people could not uh, catch up with Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or the celebration at Christmas time. We all prayed for that beer to come along. People love it to this day. The Younger, Piney the Elder. I mean, some beers out there that have set the bar extremely high. Sure, I can't believe the beer keeps getting better and better and better. I kept saying, we reached the pinnacle. And lo and behold, somebody will do it better. The thing that always amazed me was I trained probably six to ten people how to brew who worked Buffalo Bills. After a few months, I'd get tired of brewing, and I was working. I did a magazine called American <laughs> Brewer, so I'd work mm-hmm. on my magazine and operate the bar, etc. Um, I would hire a young kid to brew. I have the re- how to brew on the wall. Eight o'clock, turn on the water, you know, for eight minutes at a timer. You ran the water for eight minutes and felt to fill the kettle up to the proper level. And there's yeah. the whole day. My goal was to come in at eight and go home at five. And I would pretty well get the whole day done. I repitched my yeast over and over again, uh, and etc. So I train a kid how to, to brew. And he's following my instructions using my grain, using my water, and made better beer than me. I'm scratching my head. How can, how can this be that somebody's making better beer on my equipment, with my grain, with my water and my yeast? And your process. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I maintain. It's like being a chef. You can give a chef two eggs and give me two eggs. I promise you the chef's eggs will look better. They know how to control <laughs> little subtleties of the process to make the product better. And so a lot of people were better brewers than me for sure. But I had more fun. I did, when my CPA got a divorce, I did Alimony Ale. And I thought I had the handle here somewhere. And on the side of the bottle. This is when your accountant got divorced? After he got divorced, I said Alimony Ale. Uh, put his name and said uh, he wants to date a, a new woman and his, and his phone number. Because <laughs> we're only doing <laughs> a couple hundred bottles. Yeah, yeah. And Steve, Steve eventually shows at the pub with a young woman. And has a couple of beers and leaves. <laughs> it worked because remember in those days there's no internet. Yeah, no dating
0: services. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the pumpkin ale.
1: I was reading one of the you know, I love history books and uh, began to collect books on brewing. Of course, and um, I found that George Washington had made a fortune after being a president in uh, brewing and distilling, uh, and he would create for brewing. He would create a mash. That included gourds and pumpkins. And I said, Well, I got pumpkins. I don't have gourds, but I can go to the supermarket and buy a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can send off and get the seeds for giant pumpkins. I think they're a dollar each to get a, a pumpkin seed. I promise you, you'll grow a 200 pound pumpkin. And so, and I lost the film of me with a trailer pulling a pumpkin down to the pub. But I, what I would do is I'd pop the pumpkin, cut it up, pop it into the oven and bake it cuz you want to get out the starches and sugar. Okay. And then while the pumpkin was still warm, I would drop it into the mash and mash in with it and then run out to the boil fermentation and at the end there's no flavor. I mean, you you're talking a pumpkin is a, is is a gourd basically, but there's no spice flavor in a right. pumpkin. Right. It's neutral. And nothing's the only thing was the pig farmers loved it when I had the pumpkins in the mash because the pigs got some pumpkins to go with the mash, so they loved that. Right. So what I quickly figured out what to do was I walked across the street to Safeway, go to the spice rack, and you buy a little can of pumpkin pie spices. You take it home, put it in your coffee percolator, you perk it, and then you go in the bright beer tank in the back and add it, and now you have pumpkin pie spiced uh, pumpkin ale beer. So I just yeah on the yeah. label I just, Made with spices, you know, because you got to put the the cinnamon flavor in there or you don't have pumpkin. So now I would estimate two to three hundred pubs do pumpkin, uh, pumpkin ale, pumpkin beer, pumpkin. Even Sam uh, did pumpkin ale from what was he in? Caligione at Dogfish Head? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he did one. Yeah. I went with Sam once out to the pumpkin chunking contest where they shoot pumpkins out of the cannon about a quarter mile. You ever (laughs) seen that on TV? No. Uh, so uh, I did, uh, on the celebration of the Golden Gate Bridge anniversary, uh, I did a label with a, uh, you look down and it's a little person jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, but I said, no, no, he's bungee jumping. Uh, you know, a whole batch would be, uh, I forget how many cases, I think 22 cases is all i do, and I'd sell a few at the Safeway and, and the rest across the bar, because I had you'd have to do all hand filling, mm-hmm. and you have to re-sugar each one. Oh, jeez! Yeah, yeah. And stir it up so enough yeast came over, so you get a balance on the carbonation. Otherwise, you're overcarbonated or undercarbonated. And I just could not push the Buffalo Bills to the next level, where so many other guys around me, uh, after they got started, could expand and go to the next level, which was bottling. And today. It's canning. Holy yep. cow. I never yep. dreamed that would happen. You know, you, you, it really has made a big difference to wine and spares to can. I never thought of that one.
0: Yeah. Unexpected. I think everyone was seeing premium, you know, the bottle was the premium package, right? Can was down market. Can was cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. It was, It was. you know, the, it had a bad taste from the aluminum. Pumpkin ale has, since you first started brewing it, has become a phenomenon in the beer industry and then pumpkin spiced flavor as a flavor category has become a phenomenon in American you know food and drink consumer packaged goods across the board when, how was it how was it received when you first started bringing it what did your customers say about buffalo bill's pumpkin spiced uh, uh ale did people like it
1: did they think it was weird who, who? who's going to say anything your customers well, See, what's he doing now? I don't want pumpkin ale. I want beer. Yeah, yeah right, right. I'm not drinking anything that has a pumpkin flavor to it, so it
0: did all right. It was a novelty. People thought, oh, interesting. Okay, I don't know about that. Yeah. Donald Trump
1: was once president of the United States, so most people hanging <laughs> in a bar are not your, your brightest. Come on. And the best. <laughs> you know, uh, you know okay. that now tequila, tequila outsells whiskey now?
0: Close to yeah 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 right right yeah.
1: The world has changed. Sure, but
0: okay. So you 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 made it. People kind of thought it was weird or whatever. When did it start taking off? At any point while you were brewing pumpkin
1: ale at Buffalo Bills? uh, No, my distributor uh, sued me, claiming he owned the label. So I had to go to court and defend myself and defeat him in court. So that takes a few months and ten thousand dollars away from you. You got to remember, there's a lot of litigious people out there. That if you, uh, usually in wars, they try to kill the generals first, right? To heck with the peasants. Let's let's shoot uh, Mr. Owens in the back and sue him. And I've been through all that. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, you survived. Looking back
0: on the pumpkin ale, crea- the creation of the pumpkin ale at Buffalo Bills, I guess, like we've talked about over the course of this episode, I mean, listeners have got, their heads have got to be spinning. You've done so many things. Pumpkin ale is a very small part of your story but pumpkin ale is a, is a fairly big part of the, the craft beer story. I mean, it is a very, very popular, the most popular seasonal uh, varietal that gets introduced every year, right? That gets released every year. Did you have any idea when you were first, you know, sort of making it, working off George Washington's recipes, uh, uh, you know, putting together
1: a pumpkin ale, do you have any idea that it was going to turn into something like this? Oh, no, no, I did try to trademark it. Really? And again... Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't finish filling out, I, I trademarked some, some of my products. I think I did trademark, but you gotta remember I'm a one man operation. I did not have a wife partner who was into that, mm-hmm. you know, in life, some guys are lucky. They get wife part, not like you, I don't know what it is. They get a life partner who they're a team and they can accomplish big goals. Right. And I've met a few of those people, um, uh, I never seem to marry that kind of woman. Now, matter of fact, I, uh, I talk to my first wife all the time. We've been divorced for thirty years because we have grandchildren, so I see her and talk to her all the time. She's still my best friend, I would say. Uh, my second wife recently passed, but neither wife of my generation did the. You know, my, my wife had an iron. You know how many? There's no young woman out there who has an iron and does ironing and sewing. I don't you know. know my, 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 yeah. <laughs> my wife was. So Carol, my second wife was into that. Her whole life was about fabrics. She's not interested in brewing beer, uh-huh. and not many women are. There's a lot of women out there with a bunch of tattoos are interested in brewing for sure.
0: Uh, but well, uh, more now I think than it, than certainly when you were when you were. I, I would I would politely push back on that a little bit. I mean, these days I think there are many many more women interested in brewing than yes, I would yes, believe absolutely. in 1983. There weren't nearly as many, but I no. think
1: nowadays there certainly are. Yeah, the professions open and you can go to college and, uh, and get and get educated but I don't, I've never heard of a college girl belonging to a sorority or anything like that brewing beer. I've never met a young girl who was a home homebrewer. Oh, I see where. There's well, one and Yeah, two I'll, stip,
0: I'll stipulate on that.
1: Sure. Like I
0: don't think it is the it, I don't think it is the dominant mainstream culture. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But yeah. that's
1: changing, as you said, it, all that's changing and the world's opened up for, for women that want to wear rubber boots and work in a brewery. Bill indulge me a little bit here. We've gone
0: the distance we really appreciate you coming on the show. Give me your, I, I want to, as a way of wrapping up, take me, give me a little bit of your perspective on the legacy of Buffalo Bill's brewery. And the pumpkin ale that you created there i mean, many people consider you to be the pioneer of pumpkin ale as as a style yeah. in the United States yeah. reflect yeah. on that for me.
1: Uh, I would just say I was just uh, I don't know where why I would be reading anything about George Washington and distilling and brewing. And when I saw the pumpkin ale thing, the light just went off. I said, that's something I can do. That's like me making beer when I was 15, whiskey, wine when I was 15 years old. If Jesus could turn water into wine, so can I. So when I read some of this stuff, I say, well, I can do that. You know, I can go to Paris and go to school. And so I go and do some of these things. Most of them fail, but I, I will take the chance. Uh, that some of these things will be successful. So you have a lot of fun to try. And and I do try on lots of things. Amen to that, man. I think we can all
0: take a lesson from that. Bill, like I said, we've gone the distance here, man. Thank you so much for joining You're us welcome. here on Tap Lines and taking us down, not just one memory lane, but quite a few. Uh, you've, your life and times is... Sundry and fascinating, and thank you for letting us uh, letting us into your history a little bit.
1: Yeah, and go to BillOwens.com, it's the website, thezilling.com, or thedelcoyears.com. I have an audio book out also. Very cool. All right. Have a good one. All right, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside. who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sharino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.